Hi everyone, I'm Megan Sullivan and welcome to History in Games, a podcast where I play historical fiction games and talk about the real history hidden inside the game. In today's episode, we continue to unravel the mysteries of history found in Fire Emblem, specifically Fire Emblem Three Hopes, an action strategy game developed by Omega Force and published by Nintendo for the Nintendo Switch. Now in my last podcast, we talked about the significance of the name Arvel and how it could be a clue as to who Arvel really is. And now that the game is out, we kind of know who Arvel is, and it turns out we weren't too far off the mark with our original guess. But although some of our questions were answered in Three Hopes, more questions cropped up in their place. And that's because Arvel ended up playing a rather minor role in the larger scheme of things, and their backstory is still a bit of a mystery. But worry not, through the power of history, I shall attempt to fill in some of the blanks about who and what Arvel is, or at least attempt to entertain you with some fun historical facts. A warning though, there are spoilers for Fire Emblem Three Houses and Fire Emblem Warriors Three Hopes Ahead, so just be aware. Now initially I speculated that Arvel was once an ancient deity of Fodlan, one determined to avenge their people, the Agarthans, after they were almost completely wiped out during a war with the goddess Sothis and her children, the Nabataeans. This war, by the way, was started by the jealous and fearful Agarthans, who somehow got it in their head that Sothis and the Nabataeans were bad. At any rate, the hateful Agarthans lost the war, the goddess sent a catastrophic flood to wipe them out as punishment for starting it, and the few survivors of said flood retreated underground, where they've been plotting revenge ever since. This penchant for living underground and manipulating events on the surface earned them the name Those That Slither in the Dark. Now, I assumed that like their followers, Arvel had been hiding out for many, many centuries, waiting for the perfect opportunity to strike back at their enemies. And indeed, Arvel's conscience wakes up in Shez, the main character of Three Hopes. Although it turns out, Arvel has lost their memory and can't remember what they're supposed to be doing. They know Shez is their quote-unquote partner in destiny, and that the names of all the bad guys, aka those that slither in the dark, are familiar, and they're certain it's their duty to help Shez in their quest to defeat the ashen demon Byleth, the hero of Fire Emblem Three Houses, whom Shez resents for cutting down their friends in battle. But it's not until later in the game, during a hidden, missable chapter, and a paralogue unlocked in New Game Plus, that we learn the truth about who and what Arvel really is, and why they want to take down Byleth so badly. As it turns out, Rather than being a deity of the Agarthans, Arvel is an Agarthan, or rather a creation of an Agarthan named Epimenides. As explained in a massive exposition dump, Epimenides was once a powerful mage and one of the leaders of the Agarthans, all of whom, by the way, are named after the seven sages of Greece. I'll get to that in a minute. After losing to the Nabataeans long, long ago, Epimenides vowed he would avenge his people no matter how long it took. He thus jaunted off to his underground lab, referenced in the opening cutscene of Three Hopes, and created a spirit vessel, which he named Arvel, or Larva in Japanese, that could house his very essence. His soul, or conscience if you will, could then be easily transferred from one body to another, allowing him to be reborn again and again, always waiting for the opportunity to strike back at Sothis and the Nabataeans. 
By the way, I assume it's the same technology that allows the Agarthans to possess people after they've kidnapped them. Now, it's not entirely clear because the story is frustratingly vague, but during this huge exposition dump, it's implied that Shez, the current host of Epimenides' soul, was created in a lab for the express purpose of being a new host body. However, for some unknown reason, a fellow Agarthan, a female mage whose name is unknown to us, decided to take the test tube baby and run, raising the child as her own in a remote mountain village. That at least is one of the prevailing theories fans have about Shez's origins. Personally, I feel like it makes more sense that like Lysithia and Edelgard, the baby was kidnapped and experimented on, and the female mage was so horrified by what happened to these poor kids, she took the baby and ran. I don't know, what do you think? Leave your theories in the comments below. At any rate, what is clear is that it's not until Shez crosses swords with Byleth that Arvel, the spiritual vessel of Epimenides, is jolted awake. And although Arvel doesn't remember who they are or what their purpose is, they sense that it's important to help Shez defeat Byleth in battle. That drive, of course, really comes from Epimenides, who senses Byleth is the current human vessel for the goddess Sothis and is determined to kill her. But what Epimenides did not count on is that Arvel would develop their own identity, and what's more, their human vessel Shez is also fiercely independent and capable of making their own decisions. Thus, in the hidden chapter, which is only available if you decide to recruit Byleth instead of killing them, an angry Epimenides will not only regain full consciousness, but override Arvel and forcefully take over Shez's body. He then coldly sacrifices one of his fellow Agarthans, in this case Solon, in order to cast a magical spell that sends Byleth, Shez, and hey, coincidentally, the leaders of the three houses of Fodlan to a strange dark void, where Epimenides hopes they will be trapped forever. Ever. But that's not what happens. After appearing as a ghostly exposition vehicle, because I guess somehow Epimenides can survive independently of a body as long as he's in a void, he is soundly defeated by the heroes and disappears, taking Arvel with him. Before they disappear, however, Arvel regains control and states how proud they are of Shez and grants Shez their powers as a parting gift. It's kind of sad. And super confusing. It feels like we're just left with more questions than answers. Like, who is Epimenides really? What was all that about soul reincarnation? Well, let's put on our history hats and see if we can figure out what the developer was going for here, at least thematically. And we'll start with Epimenides, or maybe I should say Epimenides. Epimenides was both a priest of Zeus and a philosopher poet from Crete who lived during the late 7th and early 6th centuries BCE. He was considered one of the seven sages of ancient Greece, and according to tradition, was good friends with his fellow wise man, the Athenian lawgiver Solon. That's why it's doubly ironic that Epimenides kills Solon in three hopes, they're supposed to be friends! According to Plutarch, this friendship came about because Epimenides was once asked by the Athenians to cleanse their city of a terrible plague. This evil pollution, or miasma, was thought to be the result of the murder of a would-be tyrant named Kilon and or his followers during the Olympiad some years before. As I explained in my video about the Fury Sisters, murder didn't just affect a single person in ancient Greece. It could affect a whole family or even an entire community if the angry ghost of the murder victim was not properly appeased. But no matter what the Athenians did, they couldn't seem to get rid of the angry ghosts literally plaguing them. 
Therefore, they asked Epimenides, already famous as both a poet, philosopher, and prophet, to come over from Crete and cleanse the city of its impurity, which he managed to do. And while doing so, Epimenides became friends with Solon, and according to Plutarch, even, quote, prepared the way for Solon's future legislation. Once the city of Athens was rid of all pollution, Epimenides announced he would return to Crete. As a show of gratitude for all he had done, the Athenians then attempted to shower him with gifts and honors, but the priest insisted all he wanted as payment was a branch of a sacred olive tree and Athens' eternal friendship. After that, he returned home, but what happened next isn't clear. Some sources claim Epimenides died at an advanced age and was later worshipped as a deity. Others say he was taken prisoner in a war between Sparta and Crete and was put to death by his Spartan captors after he refused to prophesize favorably for them. Over half a millennia later, the ancient travel writer Pausanias claimed to have seen the monument of Epimenides in Sparta, which according to some stories included the philosopher's tattooed skin, which apparently was thought to bring the Spartans luck. Now this last part may seem like a really odd story, especially considering how conservative and pious the Spartans were supposed to be. However, there are various ancient accounts of oracles being written on parchment or even human skin. The ancient Greeks were also known to venerate the bones of mythical heroes, including ones like those for Theseus and Orestes. Also, fun fact, according to Adrian Mayer, whose History and Games interview you can also check out, some of these bones may have actually belonged to prehistoric creatures. You can read all about that in her wonderful book, The First Fossil Hunters. At any rate, whatever happened to Epimenides, it's clear he was quite famous and respected in antiquity. Today, however, he is most famous as the person responsible for the Epimenides paradox. This paradox states, all Cretans are liars. It's a paradox because Epimenides was from Crete, so he's either lying about all Cretans lying, which kind of proves the statement true, or he's telling the truth, but then that means not all Cretans are liars, so that makes him a liar. Yeah, you can see how it's a mind-bending paradox. Not that it matters, because if Epimenides really said that, it's possible he wasn't being ironic. As a priest of Zeus, he may have been protesting the Cretan belief that there was a grave of Zeus on their island, an impossibility if you believe that Zeus was an immortal god living on Olympus. What's going on here? Why would the Cretans even believe that? Well, first and foremost, they may not have. Some scholars think an ancient writer either misinterpreted or made up a local custom, and other ancient writers just sort of ran with it. But it's also possible the Cretans themselves got mixed up about an ancient custom, and that is what was making Epimenides angry. But if that's the case, how did this mix-up come to be? Well, historians think that this so-called grave might actually have been a sacred place belonging to an ancient vegetation god, one that died and was reborn again and again to reflect the changing of the seasons. This young vegetation god appears to have been very popular in Crete, and was either associated with an ancient hunting deity named Velhanos, and or was tied to an early form of Dionysus, perhaps known as Zagreus. And now's a good time to point you in the direction of my History and Games episode for Hades, which is all about the origins of Zagreus. 
At any rate, at some point the Indo-European Zeus made his way over to Crete and aspects of the old religion were folded into the new religion, which Epimenides would have been a part of. So if Epimenides really called his fellow Cretans liars, either he was rejecting the idea of Olympian Zeus dying at all because that doesn't make any sense, or he was rejecting the idea of a Cretan version of Zeus dying, because even if that Zeus is associated with an ancient vegetation god, he still can't really die because he's always reborn in spring. Speaking of being reborn, did the real Epimenides have any interest or connection to the idea of reincarnation? Possibly. You see, over time, Epimenides started to become more and more associated with Orphism, a religion famous for A, believing in a god that died and was reborn, and B, promised its initiates a way out of an endless cycle of death and rebirth so they could enjoy a happy afterlife. Now, there's no direct evidence that Epimenides was part of an Orphic cult, but some Orphic writings are later attributed to him, and the god at the center of Orphism just happens to be Dionysus Zagreus, whose origins are connected to the Cretan vegetation god I talked about earlier. So it's possible Epimenides did have some sort of belief in soul transmigration. And in fact, the author, Diogenes Lartios, goes so far as to have Epimenides claim, quote, that his soul had passed through many incarnations. The author even links Epimenides to Pythagoras, another famous philosopher and one who very much believed in reincarnation. But to be fair, this commentary was written long after the Cretan philosopher made his way to Athens, so it's hard to say if it's really accurate or not. But hey, it's in the history books, so there it is. Okay, great, so why is any of this important? Well, it might explain the inspiration for our new supervillain in Three Hopes. Since Epimenides was associated with the idea of reincarnation, it's possible that the developers of Three Hopes came across this information and thought, hey, we need a name for our new mad scientist character. Oh wait, the Agarthans are inspired by ancient Greece, the leaders are all named after ancient Greek wise men, and the sage Epimenides may have believed in reincarnation, so let's call our new character Epimenides or Epimenides. And if that's the case, thematically, it totally works. It doesn't excuse a bunch of weird plot holes, but the name works. So the mystery of who Epimenides is and why he's so obsessed with reincarnation is now kind of solved. Although in the end, I'm probably overthinking all of this anyway. I think the developer was just having some fun throwing in interesting bits of ancient culture into the world-building aspect of Fire Emblem, and there's not much more to it than that. But it's just so fun to unpack the history hidden inside these games. There's so much of it that we've already uncovered, from ancient Greece to ancient Egypt, ancient Rome to ancient Abatia, ancient Tibet to the Dark Ages of Europe, and we're not even finished. There's lots more to explore. So if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy my video series on Fire Emblem, please give this video a like and subscribe to this channel and I'll keep the history coming. Thanks so much for supporting History and Games, guys. See you later.